FDR is by far the most complicated and controversial president in relationship to the history of North America's Jewish community. In this new miniseries, FDR and the Jews, we're going to look at some of those interactions and some of those complexities. In this episode, part one, we're going to go through an overview of FDR's early years, then take a look at the Great Depression and the New Deal and how all of those historical episodes impacted the Jewish community. As always, please feel free to reach out if you have any questions. Please like and share this podcast, and I really hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the Jewish History Podcast. I'm Rabbi Nachum Meth. All right, welcome everyone. And I'm super excited for the start of this um, series, FDR and the Jews. It's an absolutely astounding thing. Franklin Delano Roosevelt becomes president from March 4th, March 4th, 1933 to April 12th, 1945. Virtually to the day, there's another significant person who rises to power. Adolf Hitler, March 21st, 1933 to April 30th, 1945. Within weeks, literally on both ends, they're both in power for about 12 years and would change the history of the universe uh, for better and mainly for the worst. Um, the three-part series we're going to launch tonight, FDR and the Jews, is you know certainly going to be primarily about uh, Roosevelt, um, his interactions with the Jewish community. I'm sure a lot of people have strong opinions about Roosevelt. He is by far and away the most significant president when it comes to Jewish relations is going to be Roosevelt. Um, his role in the Holocaust is by far and away the most complex, complicated, controversial area in um, Jewish American history. There is no second place. That is by far and away the most complicated, controversial elements, um, you know, in American Jewish history. Now, we read in this week's Torah portion, read most people are familiar with the story of the flood, Noah. And after that, we learn about, welcome, we read about, we're introduced to an interesting figure, an interesting biblical figure who often gets overlooked. His name is Lot. You may have never heard of Lot. Lot is Abraham's nephew. Abraham's nephew. Growing up, I had a rabbi. I grew up in Maryland, in Southern Maryland. My rabbi growing up, Rabbi Kalman Winter, blessed memory, loved Lot. Of all biblical figures, he used to say Lot was his favorite biblical figure. Of all people, why are you picking Lot? He says, you go through the Torah narrative, you go through the biblical narrative, you got a lot of heroes, you got the Abrahams, the Isaacs, the Jacobs, the Noahs, the Moses, full of heroes. We've got villains aplenty. We've got the Pharaohs. We've got all sorts of villains. There's no shortage of villains. Lot is kind of hard to categorize. If you read the story, you know, he's kind of nowhere. He's kind of everywhere. He's Abraham's nephew. Abraham's a pious, righteous man. Lot attaches himself to Abraham to follow him to study from him, to learn from him. Yet we read that Lot at some point says, you know what? I've had enough of Abraham. Let me go to Sodom and Amora, like, you know, really bad cities, places of ill repute. Let me go hang out there. So on the one hand, he makes tough decisions to, you know, of self-sacrifice. I'm going to go ahead and live my life with Abraham. Then he says, you know what? Maybe I'll go to a different place. 
His life ping-pongs back of good and bad. And my rabbi would always say, you know, you know, heroes, villains, there's a lot to obviously the Torah and the narrative of the Torah and all the lessons that we learn from the Torah are super duper important. And we get that. But the reality is most of us are kind of mixes of good and bad. We like to think we're all heroes and your next door neighbor, he's the villain. But right, the reality is, is that most of us are a big, we're very complicated people. Humanity, tend, most people are not reducible to good and bad. Most people are a lot. Now, some people are, you know, the antagonist of this story is, you know, evil of the highest degree. But most people in real life are not reducible to being good and bad. Your next door neighbor, although he, you know, makes too much noise and, you know, he's always parking in front of your house and it's, you know, he never takes the trash can in, right? You know, he's not pure evil. I mean, probably is, except for my name. He is, no, no, right? <laughs> Their people are complicated. And, and if you have to describe, if you're going to describe FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, in one word, it's complicated. He's contradictory. He is very, very difficult to define in one, in one word. He defies categorization. Some people love him and some people hate him. You know, he had many faults. He had many strengths. He was beloved by many Jews. He's vilified by many Jews. FDR kept no memoirs. He kept no diary. And that wasn't by mistake. That was the kind of guy that he was. He was a shrewd politician. Would make Nixon blush. He told people what they wanted to hear. He knew how to tell people what they wanted to hear. What he actually was going to do about it may have been a different story. But if you walked in and you met FDR, you walked away charmed, impressed. This guy knows what he's doing. He liked to work back channels. He loved to manipulate the scene. He never went front door. He was always a backdoor guy. He liked openness and conflict in his cabinet with the people around him. He, he liked people hashing out and kind of he'll sit on the side and watch what happened. He's a complex person. Um, and particularly as it gets towards his relationship with Jewish history and the American Jewish community, it becomes even more nuanced and complicated. There's an incredible story, and I just have a couple... Today's class, we're going to really divide into three parts. There's the introduction, which we're kind of in the middle. We're going to talk about FDR in his pre-presidency, his upbringing, what he did before the president, and then we're going to talk about his role in the New Deal. Now, there's a remarkable story that I love to share. Uh, it's found in the Talmud. Talmud says that there was a, a rabbi named Rabbi Ashi during Talmudic times, wonderful man, great, pious rabbi brilliant scholar. And he was giving a lecture one day and he started talking about uh, one of the kings of Israel, one of the kings of Judea. His name was Menashe. Now, Menashe was probably the most vile, evil king in the history of the Jewish people. He was a terrible, despicable person. He was King Hezekiah's son. Hezekiah was a wonderful man, but his son Menashe was rotten to the core. Idolatry, immorality, did all sorts of really, really bad things. And Rabbi Ashi, this is a thousand years later, is giving a lecture, and he mentioned something derogatory, backhanded, about Menashe to his students. And sure enough, later that night, 
Lo and behold, this doesn't happen. Nowadays, back in Talmudic times, if you were a cool guy, what happens? Rabbi Ashi goes to sleep, and who appears to him in a dream? None other than Menashe. And Menashe says, why are you talking negatively about it? And Rabbi Ashi says, well, because you're a jerk. Can I tell you? You're a, you're a bad, you were a bad guy. And Menashe says, let me ask you a question. What are you guys studying in the yeshiva? What are you guys talking about? What's, what's the discussion of the day? And Rabbi Ashi says they were talking about some intricacy. It happened to be they were talking about the laws of Netzilat Yadayim, if you're familiar, washing of the hands. It was some nuanced question that they had about what happens if you wash your hand in a particular situation. It was a very nuanced technical question that required a lot of erudition, a lot, it required some real scholarship. And Menashe, in this dream, tells Rabbi Ashi, here's the answer. And Rabbi Ashi says, well, yeah, I don't get it. And he was blown away by Menashe's erudition, scholarship, brilliance, insight, background. You know, Menashe, this evil, horrible person, again, in a dream, you know, appears to be a Torah scholar. And Rabbi Ashi says, you know, my high, what's going on? Like, why? You know, I see that you are a brilliant Talmudist. Uh, you know, you're a better rabbi than I am. You know, why did you worship idols? Why did you f- lead the Jewish people? And you, you, Menashe was known to be a real idolater. And he, he said, Rabbi Ashi says, I can't, I can't square the circle. I can't figure it out. Why were you such an idolater? And Menashe tells Rabbi Ashi, he says, I want you to know, had you been around in my generation, had you been alive when I was alive, the language of the Talmud is, if you would have been there, you would have lifted up your coat so that your coat wouldn't get in the way of you running to go worship idols. You would have been the guy like to be out of the front, like at the Apple store, the guy camping out, you know, two days in advance. You would have been that guy. As if to tell him, you know, don't judge me. You think I'm a bad person for, you know, being an idolater. Had you been alive in my generation, you would have been a far worse idolater than I was. That's what Talmud says. It's clearly referencing, there's an idea, the, the passion for idolatry is something that doesn't exist anymore. And Menashe was kind of telling, don't judge me. You know, you don't have the temptations that I have. All right. There's a great historian, a great Jewish historian. Um, he's not doing well. His name is Rabbi Beryl Wine. He lives in Israel. And he would always use this story, this passage in the Talmud, and I love it, as a way of really setting the stage Whenever we talk about a historical figure, you know, particularly in today's culture of cancel culture, you know, of, of, of we have a, a revisionist history, there is a tendency and a temptation to judge historical characters based on today's morality, based on today's mores, what's appropriate today. And Menasha is telling Rabbi Ashi, you know, be careful, be careful with that. Had you been around in my day, you would have been far worse. Now, that's an important lesson. It doesn't excuse bad behavior. It does, I don't think anyone would say, you, know, you see, for me, Menashe was really a good guy. No, he was a bad guy. But the lesson is, don't be so quick. It's hard for us, whenever you're dealing with a historical figure, particularly someone like Roosevelt, it's very tempting to look at Roosevelt in the lens of, you know, what's appropriate in 2021. And that's not fair. That's not fair. We have to look at Roosevelt and judge him and assess him 
you know, to some degree, you know, through the lens of, you know, 1921, you know, 1911, 1931, 1941. There's a remarkable passage. One of the books, I'll, I'll talk about some of the source materials. One of the best books on this tonight's topic and next week's topic of FDR and the Jews is a book entitled FDR and the Jews. Now, this, this book is fairly recent, came out in 2013 by Richard Brighton and Alan Lichtman. These are professors in American University in D.C., go D.C. And the end of their work, the last paragraph in the, in the kind of in the postscript in the, the end of the book, um, I, I, just to build on this, I think it's very important. He, he, they, they write the following paragraph, which I'd like to share. He says, in a retrospect on FDR published some two weeks after his death, Felix Frankfurter insightfully wrote that, uh, and Felix Frankfurter is someone who we're going to talk about. He's going to be a significant person. Felix Frankfurter insightfully wrote that contemporaries, Frankfurter insightfully wrote that contemporaries no less than later generation, uh, no less than later generations have claimed the legacy of world leaders. Listen to what Frankfurter writes. Fluctuations of historic judgment are the lot of great men, and Roosevelt will not escape it. Okay? You know, what people judge Roosevelt today, 45, it's going to fluctuate. His reputation will go up, it'll go down. You know, Roosevelt's not stronger than that force of history. But this is what he writes, and it's brilliant. But if history has its claim, so has the present. For it has been wisely said that if the judgment of the time must be corrected by that of posterity, it is no less true that the judgment of posterity must be corrected by that of the time. That is a brilliant insight. What Frankfurter is saying, sort of like another idea built on, you know, again, let's not judge necessarily or be careful judging people, you know, based on different standards, standards of different generation. At the same time, don't ignore the fact of a person's role during his time. Frankfurter is alluding to the fact of whether or not you want to crucify FDR and condemn him, whether you, whatever your thoughts are, you cannot ignore certain realities of the judgment of his day. And that's something that I think a lot of people miss. And it's an important point to point out. FDR was beloved. You know, we might want to criticize him. You might have whatever opinions you have. There's a certain fact. He had a very high presidential approval rate. He was beloved particularly by the American Jewish community. He was beloved by the American Jewish community. And that's a very important thing. Roosevelt's going to be elected president four times, which is obviously, you know, no president moving forward unless we repeal, you know, the amendment, whatever it is, the 21st Amendment, 22nd Amendment. Unless that's repealed, Roosevelt goes in the Guinness Book of World Records. He'll be the longest serving, you know, president. He wins four elections. Jewish community, if you break it down and statistics do this analysis based on geography, the best guess is, is that he won the Jewish vote somewhere each election. The lowest percent of the Jewish vote that he got was 82%, 82% as high as 90%. That's a reality. And that's a point that Frankfurter is making is even if we're going to condemn or misjudge or qualify or caveat Roosevelt, you have to understand that he was beloved. No matter your opinion, he was an incredibly significant person in American history. He's a very important person in Jewish history, and he's a very important person in American Jewish history. And he's definitely worth our our focus and attention. Um, 
Obviously, he's a very going to be a very polarizing person, uh, particularly in American Jewish history for his role in the Holocaust. What did he do? What didn't he do? What could he have done? What should he have done? But we're not going to talk about that. That's going to be the subject of next week and the week after where we're going to talk about what he could have done for relief. what What could he have done in terms of rescue before the war, during the war? And that's going to be the most controversial parts of Roosevelt's career and his interaction with with the Jewish community. Tonight, what we're going to do is it's an interesting thing. Roosevelt, again, love him or hate him, he is remarkable in the sense that, you know, most presidents, you know, one of the things, one of the great regrets, Petty Roosevelt, you know, a distant relative of of Franklin Roosevelt, he recognized he was a very, very ambitious person. You know, Teddy Roosevelt was very ambitious and he made it to the top. He's president. But he knew in order to achieve, you know, historical recognition, he needed a war. You know, he needed a crisis. He can be the victor and he could be the hero. You know, when things are calm and things are, you know, when there's no conflict and there's no challenges facing the country, we tend to forget those presidents. Anyone know when Benjamin Harrison was president? No, you don't. He may have been a wonderful person, but he lived in a pretty boring time in American history, right? Teddy Roosevelt, who was a very, he was hoping that it'd be a war, some kind of crisis. Now, Roosevelt didn't just face one crisis, Franklin Roosevelt. He faced two crises, you know, World War II, but the Great Depression as well. And it's important and it's worthy, I believe, of a discussion to understand what was his role. And Jews were deeply affected by the, by the Great Depression. And particularly, Jews would be very affected by Roosevelt's response to the Great Depression, particularly the New Deal. So that's what we're going to talk about um, now that we did our introduction. We're going to divide the remaining time. We're going to talk about sort of a bio. Who was Franklin Delano Roosevelt? Um, where did he come from? What did he do? And then the second part's going to deal with, you know, the New Deal, the, those parts of his presidency, um, but not dealing with his roles in World War II. Okay, natural st- stopping point. Any thoughts, questions before we go on? Oh, I've got someone up there. Okay, here we go. So FDR is born. Jan- Everyone good so far? Good. Need coffee? We got plenty of it over there. I'm caffeinated. I hope you are too. Franklin Roosevelt's born January 30th, 1882 in Hyde Park. It's upstate New York. He's born in Hyde Park. Um, his family, his parents, James and Sarah, are very wealthy, very waspy, um, classic wasps, but, but very upper crust. Oh, that, they were, FDR is born to wealth. The Roosevelts actually went back many generations. The original Roosevelt, his great 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 grandfather, um, you know, moves to um, to the United States before they're the United States in the 1600s. The colonies, you know, if you've heard, was Roosevelt was a Jew. People used to call him Rosenfeld or Rosenberg, right? That's not true, right? Who called him Rosenfeld? The Nazis, who didn't like him. They wanted to vilify him and say, oh, Roosevelt's a Jew. He's really, his name, real name is Rosenfeld, Rosenberg, Rosenhat, whatever. But he was not Jewish. He wasn't close to being Jewish um, as, as Waspy. He was an Episcopalian his whole life. Um, and, and, and that was that. His father, James, did business with Jews. Um, his mother, Sarah, 
in this book, FDR and Jews, talks about how Sarah receives some, you know, award for, you know, her outreach for the Jewish community, you know, later on in her life, Sarah had had interaction with the Jewish community. Um, FDR grows up in a household that relative, you know, tort for his time, it's relatively unprejudiced, unprejudiced. Now, that doesn't mean to say, and again, this is where that whole lesson of judging people based on today's time versus that time, you know, would he use racial stereotyping? Of course, you know, the things and attitudes and beliefs that he had about religion and racial differences, you know, today, you know, we'd be canceled, you know, in 10 seconds. But relative to his age, he was very tolerant and grew up in a fairly unprejudiced house. Actually, his neighbors, one of the na- his neighbors growing up in uh, Hyde Park were the Morgenthau's. Now, Morgenthau's, Morgan, Henry Morgenthau Sr. Uh, was a Jewish man who um, was a significant person in American history in his own right and would have a son, Henry Morgenthau Jr., who would be very significant, would actually be the only Jew to serve on FDR's cabinet. Now, but again, it just gives you the sense, FDR growing up, his family, and as a child, you know, they did have some interactions with Jews. That doesn't mean don't think that, like, he was the Shabbos guy for the Morgan. That's not, that, that's not the case. But did he meet Jews? Yes, he did. Um, FDR was an only child, and that was significant. If there ever was someone who has that personality of an only child, you know, that personality of you know, where the world revolves around you, it was FDR. FDR was the sun, the moon, the stars for his, for his parents, James and Sarah. They coddled him. They, do- they doted over him. They provided his every need. They took him to France, to Germany. They he traveled the world, which was actually to his benefit. FDR would, would, would go and literally see the world. He would speak multiple languages. He actually, again, most historians believe, you know, he knew German, was fluent in German, probably read Mein Kampf in the original German, which is pretty impressive. It's an impossible book, book to read. Um, but he was, he was very well educated. He, um, for high school, he went to the famous Groton School, Ed, Endicott Peabody, who is a significant person in American, in American history. He then goes to, to, to Harvard, um, where he, you know, what kind of student was he? He got, well, I think, what you would call the gentleman's seat. He was, you know, he definitely did under his, underachieved, but that's because that was fine. He was an unathletic person. He loved athletics, but wasn't particularly good. Although I believe he worked as like the equipment manager for the football team or something like that. He loved, he loved sailing which would, uh, that was a big part, what, what he liked in terms of hobbies, in terms of athletics. He had Jewish, he had, he had strong humanitarian, his strong humanitarian conscience was already evident while he was at Harvard. He encountered several Jews while he was at Harvard, and he was comfortable around Jews in Harvard. He also believed that Harvard should maintain its quotas on how many Jews could be allowed um, to join and be enrolled. Which again, that's horrible. It's racist. It's terrible. But again, that was that was normal for for those days. After graduating Harvard, he goes to Columbia um, to the law school. Now he doesn't graduate law school. He drops out. You know, he just he was not the kind of guy who liked sitting and and going to. He wasn't a school kind of guy. But he ended up taking the bar exam and he becomes admitted as a lawyer, um, practicing in New York. Um, he didn't like practicing law. But he did it. There's a remarkable sound. Let me just, as an aside, 
there are several biographies. I've read three biographies of, of FDR. There's this one, uh, FDR by Ted Morgan. I didn't like it, but if you're interested, it's, it's an okay book. Um, I read this one. This one is a much better book, Traitor to, Traitor to His Class by H.W. Brands, who's a fantastic author. I love H.W. Brands. I thought this book was one of his worst books, um, but it is, it's there. And Doris Kearns Goodwin wrote a, a, a good biography. Um, I forget what it's called, and I don't have it with me, but that would be the one I'd recommend. Although if you've read Goodwin's works, she gets a lot into, you know, and I majored in psychology, but she's a little too heavy on the psychobabble, but, but that would be another very good work. In a, I remember, uh, not in the summer, there's a very cool footnote in the bottom of this book. It talks about FDR, his brilliant, he was a brilliant man. And like the, he was sent by his, it was like on his first day on the job, they sent him to, you know, just to be, a, you know, to record what, you know, some, some gopher job at the, at the, at the, um, in uh, at the courthouse to just go ahead and, and, you know, what happened? There were like six cases that were, you know, this, this law firm had to deal with. And he was just supposed to take care of paperwork, shuffle some papers on a desk. And he decided he would go ahead and try those cases, you know, and, and, and he won all six of them. And like, that wasn't what he was sent for. And they were just blown away. I mean, he knew what he was doing. Um, but he didn't like the law and would very early on in his life enter state politics. It's around this time where he meets, and you can't tell the story of FDR without learning the story and telling the story of E.R., Eleanor Roosevelt. Who is Eleanor Roosevelt? Eleanor Roosevelt uh, is, uh, is a very significant, a very significant. Without Eleanor, FDR is not FDR. That, that is one thing that's absolutely clear. I was actually in the library today uh, picking out another book, which, you know, for next week's class. And I happened to note, I was curious, how many biographies did they have on FDR? They only had one there, right here in the library, right here. They had three on Eleanor Roosevelt. I thought that was interesting, whatever that means, however you want to take that. Um, Eleanor Roosevelt was orphaned at 10. She was orphaned. Her father died. Uh, her father was Teddy Roosevelt's brother, who was, uh, a, he was a drunkard. He loved Eleanor, but had a drinking problem. He dry, died of alcoholism. Uh, and his and her mother died. With her 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 father dies. I think when she's six or seven, and that was like the end of the world for her. And her mother shortly thereafter. Um, she was functionally raised by Teddy Roosevelt. Now, just to back up in terms of family, Teddy Roosevelt and Franklin Roosevelt were very distant cousins, like fifth cousins, and they were from like the competing parts of the of the family. The, the Roosevelt family, as I mentioned, goes back centuries. But there were two branches of the family. There was the, the Hyde Park family where, where Roosevelt or Franklin FDR was from. And then the Long Island branch where Teddy Roosevelt was from. And they didn't see eye to eye, right? The, the Hyde Park where FDR came from, they were all Democrats. Teddy Roosevelt was a Republican. Teddy Roosevelt actually raised, for the most part, his niece, Eleanor. Um, he loved her. She was, he was her father figure. Um, It's interesting, FDR, it's FDR and Ella, so they fell in love whenever, I think after in, in his time in Columbia and they get married, um, they actually got married in the White House. They got married in the White House, Teddy Roosevelt, um, no, not, and Teddy Roosevelt um, gave away, you know, Eleanor as the bride, walked her down the aisle, um, and they got married. Their marriage was a complicated one, to say the least. Was a complicated one. Within a couple of years of their of their marriage, 
10 years, maybe even earlier, uh, Eleanor learned, discovered, um, as we're going to see in a minute, it's actually when he was traveling overseas and, and he came back, she was helping him unpack. And as she was unpacking his stuff, she came across a couple of love letters. From who? From Lucy Mercer, not Lucy Mercer. From Lucy Mercer, yes. From <laughs> Lucy Mercer, who he had an affair with and Eleanor was con- con- contemplating divorce. It ended their marriage functionally. Now, I mentioned that FDR was uh, an only child. His father, James, dies when he's like nine, 18, 19, 20, when he's very, you know, very young. His mother, Sarah, never remarried and would become incredibly dominant and domineering in FDR's life and in FDR and Eleanor's marriage. She was intrusive. She was meddlesome. She was annoying. That's what we call mother-in-laws. No, sorry. Ima, if you're watching, we love you. No, I love my mother-in-law, but you have to correct mother-in-law. Right? She was terribly intrusive, and to make things more complicated, is she controlled the purse strings. FDR didn't really have any wealth. He was from family. He was from family wealth, and, and Sarah had all the money. It was at this time, and we're going to talk about FDR's early political career in a moment, FDR encounters a, a very important person, one of the most important people in his life, someone who's for, largely forgotten by history, a fellow named Lewis Howe. Lewis Howe is disheveled. Lewis Howe is unpresentable. Lewis Howe smelled. Lewis Howe was everything, right? Lewis Howe made FDR FDR because he was a political genius. He was the political force behind FDR through his presidency. He would die in FDR's presidency, but he was who made FDR FDR. And both Lewis Howe and Sarah Roosevelt Lewis Howe, not Jewish. Howe, H-O-W-E. Lewis Howe was his name. He was a behind-the-scenes man. Never really did any, held any formal position. He was never in the cabinet. I think he had weird, you know, titles of sorts. Yeah, he's not, he's not, he's, if you study FDR, you'll see his name everywhere. And you'll realize he was one of the most important people, you know, politically behind Eleanor. It would be, let, it would, the next person would be, Lewis Howe. Um, they convinced FDR and Eleanor to stay together, not because they were interested in Shalom Bias and repairing, you know, building back love in their house. They didn't care about that. They were interested in FDR's political future. And they both realized back then you got a divorce. That was the end of your, you, you wouldn't, that, that was unheard of. It was unconscionable even though there were presidents who've been divorced, but that wouldn't have worked. They, they, they thought that would ruin FDR's political future. So they made FDR swear in a stack of Bibles to Eleanor that he would stop seeing Lucy Mercer. And Eleanor was fine with that. Um, but their marriage from that point forward wasn't a marriage. It was a business partnership. It was a, it was a corporation. Um, Bill and Hillary Clinton. <laughs> I'm sorry, I, that's not a political thing, but like that kind of thing, I don't know. I'm sure they, they love each other deeply, but, but what skeptics would say was going on in, in that kind of relationship. Um, FDR wouldn't keep the promise. He would continue that, rela- that affair with, with Lucy Mercer later on. There's been a lot of discussion. FDR later on in his life would have his secretary was Missy Lehan. It's a very, it was, Kind of, oh, she was interesting. Missy Lehan was the secretary. Functionally, she would end up as his president, being his chief of staff. Um, 
Roosevelt's son, James, claims that they also had an affair. Roosevelt was a womanizer to some degree, not maybe scandalous, but again, they didn't have much of a marriage. They ended up having six kids, uh, all of them pretty, pretty dysfunctional, at least in terms of their family lives. In 19, I think it's 21, 1921, um, FDR is on a, on a, some kind of trip. It's some kind of like, I think it was actually even the Boy Scouts of America or something similar to Boy Scouts of America. He was at some retreat that they were having. He was a big supporter of them and he went swimming. And apparently while he was swimming there, um, he, you know, began to notice that his legs were tingling. And later he would continue after that trip, he just noticed his legs felt funny. And, um, he continued on. He used to vacation up north in Campobello, which is like, no, I don't know the area, but in, in Canada up north. And one day he was swimming two weeks later and he nearly drowned. He couldn't feel his legs anymore. Um, he was initially misdiagnosed. Um, they thought it was this. They thought it was that. But eventually they, um, they diagnosed after about two or three weeks, they diagnosed. He, had, he was suffering from what was called back then infantile paralysis or polio. And he would never walk again. He lost and that put, knocked him out for years. He would never walk again. Um, people who got polio back then, you know, that was it. You, know, you wouldn't walk. You, would, you were terribly, terribly handicapped and crippled. FDR was an incredibly determined person and he was determined to walk again. And he basically taught himself to walk functionally on his hands not literally using his hands, but using his hands and crutches with a very unsteady and apparently, if you read the descriptions, very scary to watch, bizarre form of locomotion that he invented, where essentially he would thrust his, his crutches forward and then literally propel himself forward with his arms. Um, and it took him years to develop that. You ever see pictures of, of FDR, what he would do is you get in front of the rostrum on the podium he always had braces, you know, and he would lock them in place. So his legs would be like this and he would hold on for dear life. So as not to fall, he would, he was, uh, he was relegated to a wheelchair. Um, there are very, very few pictures of his, he was very self-conscious of it. Um, it was very, um, he was very self-conscious, very few pictures of him in his, in his, uh, wheelchair. It is clear, and particularly if you read Goodwin's book, who again, I mentioned it's into the psychology and that stuff. FDR's bout and, and fight with polio and his determination to not let 99 out of 100 people back then, if you would have been an FDR and, and gotten that, he was 39 years old. If you would have gotten polio, it, you would have been done. That would have been the end of your public life, end of your career, and you would just move on. But FDR was determined. And it's no, there's no question that his polio, you know, certainly gave him strength uh, and that determination. Let's talk about his political career. He becomes a state, as I mentioned, after graduating Columbia, becomes an attorney. He doesn't like it very much. He becomes a state senator in New York, immediately becoming a state senator as, you know, FDR, who's a fighter, a loud, you know, he just likes making trouble. Immediately he goes ahead in New York, he's in New York State. He goes ahead and he he rallies against back then before the whichever amendment uh, I don't remember nineteenth no not sixteenth amendment eighteenth amendment the appoint the appointment of direct senators according to the constitution senators are elected by state legislatures and that was always a point of scandal 
And that created the political boss system where you had these political machines who could really control who would be the, the senator. You know, progressive states, people like Teddy Roosevelt were trying to do away with that. Franklin Roosevelt hated it. And he put up a big huff within the Democratic Party, the state party in, uh, in New York, which was run by a political machine called. All right, Larry, you get two points. Tammany Hall. Next time you're on, uh, you're playing, what's that game? Um, what's that game? Jeopardy or what's the other game? Uh, Trivial Pursuit. Tammany Hall. And he wanted to put them out of business. And he held up the, the nomination of James O'Gorman was his name. Uh, and he won. Um, and he would be the local state senator. In 1912, he, um, he campaigned hard for the governor of New Jersey, who is not too far away. He's again, he's in New York, governor of New Jersey, who's running to the United States presidency, Woodrow Wilson. And Wilson wins. And Wilson, to kind of reward Roosevelt and his hard work, he nominates uh, Roosevelt as the undersecretary of the Navy. Now, there was another person who's also significant in American history, who also had that same job as undersecretary of the Navy. And he also had the same name, Roosevelt. Teddy Roosevelt had the same, virtually the same projector. And that wasn't lost on the masses. People, Franklin Roosevelt now is, is a household, is becoming a household name. And he has the same job um, that his that his wife's uncle that his, his you know same name um, and he becomes meddlesome and and it's interesting the, the secretary of the navy is guy named Josephus Daniels who would say of Roosevelt that he was the most insubordinate subordinate <laughs> you're gonna get a, I think that's a great line you're gonna get a sense of who FDR was and uh, it's interesting is that Teddy Roosevelt at this time it was while he was the secret undersecretary of the navy a real rift began to to grow between um, Teddy Roosevelt and FDR, and FDR, not so much for the political differences, but because when World War I breaks out, you know, FDR didn't, this is before he had polio, FDR didn't resign to go fight in the, in the, in the Navy. Now, if I recall correctly, Wilson didn't want him to. He, wanted, he felt it would be more important for, for FDR to stay in his post in Washington. But Teddy Roosevelt, you knew anything about Teddy Roosevelt, he was the guy who romanticized the warrior. And someone, and FDR, and it was Teddy Roosevelt's dream to be able, Teddy Roosevelt begged Wilson to give him a commission in the army. I, Teddy Roosevelt was an old man and Wilson wouldn't do it. But, um, but he thought it was disgraceful that a Roosevelt wouldn't go ahead and fight in the war. Um, but this wouldn't be much of an issue. Teddy Roosevelt would be dead um, within, within a couple of years. In 1920, FDR is nominated for the vice presidential ticket for the Democratic Party, they, they nominate a fellow named James, it was James Cox, James Cox is president, and FDR gets the vice presidential nomination. Why? Well, he had a winning personality, and he had a great last name. Teddy Roosevelt was an absolute, yes, it's funny, in history, Teddy Roosevelt's stock has plummeted, not plummeted, but we don't tend to think of Teddy Roosevelt as a significant or a major president. You think of the best president, but he is on Mount, Mount Rushmore. Why? Because during those generations, during those decades, Teddy Roosevelt was and Franklin Roosevelt, he used that name uh, successfully. So he become he runs for, for president, uh, for vice president. This and he goes ahead. Um, but they lose. Right. He loses. But he, he this is where he really gets national prominence in 1924. This is three years after him getting polio. 
He's asked to go, he's asked to go ahead and give the nominating speech, one of the nominating speeches at the 1924 the Democratic National Convention. Al Smith, who had been the governor of New York, who Roosevelt knew very well, Al Smith who was a Catholic. Al Smith asks Roosevelt to, for him to give the nominating speech for the president, which he does. Now, people in the audience knew this was his first real return to the public light after polio. And people were terrified. He was, his son James was going to walk him up to the, to the, uh, to the, to the dais or whatever, the, to the platform. And then he was going to have to, with one, he wouldn't use his crutches. It's going to be pictures in this. With one cane and holding on to James for dear life to get to that podium. And everyone was holding their breath. Like everyone knew what was going on. And he'd fallen over. You know, what kind of spectacle that would have been. And he gave the speech and it was a roaring speech. And everyone knew after that speech, he was their guy. In 1928, he again, now Al Smith didn't win the nomination. But in 1928, Al Smith again runs for the nomination. And again, FDR goes ahead and gives the nominating speech. And you have one of the best stories. It's in Houston. And, you know, this is when, and this is, it's interesting because Al Smith's Catholic. And this is when really religion in politics and religious considerations are becoming an issue. Uh, or becoming a factor. So Roosevelt thought it would be wise at the Houston uh, convention. You should have a, you know, you should have a, a Catholic priest, you know, Protestant minister and a rabbi there to give the invocation. Sounds like a beginning of a bad joke, but he felt it would be really good politics, you know, to get some. So he said, I had no problem finding a Protestant, you know, minister. I had no problem finding the Catholic priest. He said, I couldn't find a rabbi in Houston. He said he had to bring one in in handcuffs, is what he said. And indeed, you know, they saw the rabbi gave an invocation. And again, um, and so that was in 1928. Al Smith pleaded with, and this is an important point, pleads with FDR to run for governor of New York. Why? What's going on in state politics in New York State is the Republicans actually nominate for the, for the governor, the Republicans nominate a Jew. Um, named uh, Albert Ottinger, deliberately to try to get the Jew vote, as there's such a thing, if there's such a thing. And the Democrats countered, their plan was to counter by having another Jew run against him, um, uh, I think it was, Hal, it was Hal Lehman, to run against him. He would actually end up being a senator in New York and governor later on. Um, but many Democrats thought that would be a bad idea. Many Jews felt it would be a bad idea to have Jew against Jew. It's not a good idea. Jews need to, you know, not be in the limelight, um, not to draw too much attention, whether you agree with that or not. People like Walter Lippmann felt that that was not a good thing politically. And people were very uncomfortable with that. The Democrats were uncomfortable with Lehman running for governor because you would have Al Smith, the Catholic, running for president and a Jew running for the governor of New York. They felt that they would get creamed in New York. Al Smith pleads with Roosevelt to run for governor, which he does, and he wins. It's during this time, and as he wins as governor, it's interesting. He meets several Jews as governor. Um, Robert Moses, Bell Moskowitz, you may have heard of. I don't know Robert Moskowitz. Okay. Robert Moses is one of the most important Jews. In, he's the most important, one of the most important figures in New York City. He bought that. He basically designed New York City. Everything in New York City was designed by Robert. The great, forget that there's a three, a three uh, book bio on Robert Moses. Fantastic. It's called Kingmaker, I think, something like that. Fantastic book. But FDR didn't like him. He sacked it. 
But it's during this time that he meets several very important Jews, very important Jews. The first one that we're going to talk about briefly is a rabbi named Stephen Wise. Stephen Wise, who we're going to talk a lot more next week and the week after. Who was Stephen Wise? Stephen Wise was born in Budapest in 1884. His grandfather was an Orthodox rabbi. Stephen Wise was very far from being an Orthodox rabbi. He was, he was too liberal for the reform rabbis. All right, okay, I see rabbi, rabbi, right? He, right, and that's not an understatement. He actually, you recall Rabbi, so rabbi Heck will know this better than anyone. Stephen Wise um, was an incredibly progressive and liberal um, rabbi. He actually was one of the founders of the NAACP, the ACLU. And eventually he was, he was offered the job and he took the job as the rabbi of Temple Emanuel in New York. You know, that's the mothership, right? But he left. He left. Why? Because they asked for him to submit his sermons, you know, beforehand for approval. And he said, no chance. And because he was, you know, he was even more, you know, left and more, you know, you know than, than Temple Emanuel. And he left and started the free synagogue. Why was it called the free synagogue? It was free of, you know, he didn't have to submit his sermons. I think I'm going to implement that at the Cole. I'm going to have Rabbi Davidowitz and Rabbi Katanik submit their classes to me first. I'll just see how that works. So he ends up doing that. Um, interesting, which is unusual for, for reform rabbis of this period in the, in, the, in the 30s, he was actually a Zionist, which was unusual. The reform rabbis were almost, I would say 90% of them were very strong anti-Zionists. Question Stephen, Wise Stephen Wise Temple, yes, name for him. Now we're going to see, I, uh, I'm going to, you know, show my hand for a second. I am not a fan of Stephen Wise, to say the least. And that's not because I'm an Orthodox rabbi. It's, it's because he, I don't think, stands scrutiny of, uh, of Jewish, Jewish history. And we'll, we'll talk about that right now briefly. Um, in 1928, he, um, he, um, he actually campaigns for FDR for governor. Um, and, and that's great. He becomes a big proponent. He likes FDR's liberal policies. Fantastic. And he ends up becoming friends with FDR, although it should be noted, Stephen Wise campaigned against FDR in 1932. He didn't like him. He didn't think he was too liberal. He didn't think he was liberal enough. But, but Stephen Wise was a shrewd politician in his own right, and he saw that FDR was a winner, so he, he attached, he pitched his wagon to that star and would end up becoming a very influential. And the reason why we bring him up, as we're going to see in next week and the week after's class, Stephen Wise would end up being, you know, the, the rabbi of the stars, you know, for the stars. He was the rabbi. He was America's rabbi. And he was very influential. And he had FDR's ear. Now, I am going to dest destroy him, criticize him, because he didn't do nearly as much as he could have to save Jews. You know, he mistook, as one scholar said, he mistook um, um, uh, friendship for influence. He mistook connection for, to get jobs done. He liked being the, rab the president's rabbi, uh, but he didn't use, he, didn't, he, he mistook access for influence. Why is this going to be a very important person? It's at this time also that, that, that Roosevelt meets Felix Frankfurter, who we mentioned earlier. Frankfurter will become a very important person and a big advisor of, of, um, of Roosevelt. Frankfurter was a Jew, uh, born in Vienna. Vienna, he actually grew up Orthodox. He was observant, uh, but would leave or, uh, observance. He would end, end up intermarrying, and uh, he really left his Judaism and abandoned his Judaism at the very end. 
when he would end up becoming a Zionist, influenced by another person who significant makes his uh, makes his way into FDR's life in a very significant way, and that's Louis Brandeis, who would eventually again Frankfurter and Brandeis would both make it to the Supreme Court, but Brandeis would really be a coach for. Um, for FDR. He would also meet a uh, someone named Sam Rosenman, another Jew, right? It's a name like Sam Rosenman. That's a nice Irish Catholic name, right? He was a, he was a state senator in New York and he would end up being one of Roosevelt's uh, speechwriters. It would be Rosenman who would popularize the term New Deal, but he would stay with FDR from this time all the way to the end. In 19, October 29th, 1929, Black Tuesday, the stock market crashes, right? Triggers the depression. You know, what trigger, what, what was the root of the depression? Now, it's clear it wasn't just the stock market crash. That may have been the catalyst. Um, that was only one of the ingredients. There were many other economic problems as well. Uh, what were those problems? That's still debated and still not so clear till today. The Great Depression was a very complicated um, financial event that's still debated hotly. Uh, but obviously, it, it devastated the economy. And I'm sure most people are familiar with the Great Depression. And, and it really triggered a, a decade of, of real poverty, of hardship for the entire country. And Jews in particular were hit very hard. Um, Initially, with the crash, few Jews went that right when the market crashed. You know, the, the depression didn't start overnight. When the market first crashed, it actually didn't in, impact too many Jews. Who did it impact? The Jews who had money in the market. Now, most Jews, statistically at this point, were, you know, first generation or second generation immigrants from Eastern Europe, from Russia. Most of these Jews did not have money to be playing in the market. So most, you know, now the wealthy German Jews from the previous generation, from the 1840s, 1850s, 1860s, you know, they're all wealthy, the Jacob Reeses of the world and, and, and so on. You know, they lost a lot of money early on. But slowly but surely, as the, as the, the market crash triggered other economic woes, um, Jews began to suffer, particularly in 1930 uh, when banks started to fail. Early on, one of the biggest banks to fail was the Bank of the United States. Bank of the United. Now that sounds like that's a governmental agency. If I say the Bank of the United States, right? Doesn't that sound like, well, I mean, what, you know, Bank of the United States sounds like it's like the Treasury Department or something. Bank of the United States is a private bank. They just took a, a very, you know, bigger name than it was. It was actually a bank owned, operated, and invested primarily by Jews. It's in New York City. And when the Bank of the United States, one of the first big banks to go bust, that's when it really, really began to hurt the Jewish community. Um, it, it, people lost jobs. We know the story of the Great Depression. And Jews were, were affected. Um, Jews suffered. Um, again, this is back you know, during when, when discrimination, religious discrimination, is you know, rampant and prevalent in its own right. So this was another setback. And really what it was, it, it, you know, Jews had a harder time. Many Jews were seeking to assimilate, to acculturate, and the depression just make it, made it one step harder. How did Jews respond to the Great Depression? Um, initially, they were reluctant to reach out to non-Jewish welfare uh, organizations um, or relief organizations. It wasn't a Traditionally, Jews took care of their own, but as the Depression wore on, it just became necessary for Jews to reach out, um, you know, to the public welfare. 
Uh, many Jews who were involved in like the needle trades in New York would actually, of all things, you know, th- those trades and many of those jobs, doctors, lawyers, all out of business. No one's hiring do- doctors. There's no insurance back then. You paid out of pocket. No one had money to pay out of pocket. Doctors all went out of business. Lawyers all went out of business. Classic Jewish jobs were killed. So Jews had to go into what we would call, quote unquote, non-traditional Jewish jobs where they faced tremendous discrimination. If your name was Rosenberg, they didn't want to hire you in some anti-Semitic you know, industry. So many Jews changed their names. Jews who didn't look very Jewish to try to mask their Judaism did that. Many Jews, interestingly, would actually go into agriculture. Now, they didn't move to like Oklahoma. You know, that's not what happened. They would move to, to Pennsylvania, to New Jersey. I have a friend whose parents moved to, uh, to like rural Massachusetts. So you're still, you know, not to, you're a day's travel, you know, you know, from the shtibel of the big city, you know, to get, you know, to, you're not too far away from Jewish life. Many Jews actually emigrated from the United States to Israel, um, which was unusual. By 1932, the economic situation was disastrous, and it was very clear FDR was going to come. By 1930, uh, Roosevelt already goes ahead, and he seeks the, the renomination for the governor. He becomes, back then, the governor of New York was only for two years. He's now governor. He wins that election. It's very clear in 1932, he was going to be the, 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 the nominee for the Democratic um, Party. Um, he wins in a landslide. He destroys Herbert Hoover who I believe gets a bad rap in history. I like Herbert Hoover. I think he's a good man and gets, uh, and by the way, that happens, that's a whole lesson in his own right. That was a lot because FDR was a shrewd politician. And I say that what is, a little bit of lesson hard. He slandered Hoover. That slander isn't the right word. He, he wanted to contrast his optimistic hope for the future of the United States and say all the problems were Hoover's, I'm the solution. He wanted to disassociate himself as much as he could from Hoover. Hoover was dealt a really bad card, a very, a very bad hand. Um, Hoover was a good man, a very good man. Um, and, but Roosevelt really wanted to blame all of the economic woes on Hoover. And that's why, historically, you think of Herbert Hoover, most people think of a loser president. Um, and and, and that's, that's not fair. He really was was uh, I've given several classes on Her- Herbert Hoover. He was, I, I would make personally the argument, the greatest humanitarian in the history of the universe. World War I and World War II, he basically saved Belgium from starving. He saved post-World War II. He saved Europe from starv- starvation. He was a very, very, very good person. But in any event, no one voted for him. FDR won in a landslide. He won 531, ele- uh, 472 electoral votes out of 531. Um, it was a landslide. Interesting, while he's president-elect, there was an assassination attempt on Roosevelt in Florida. He was in the car together with the mayor of Chicago, who got hit and was killed by some anarchist wackadoo from uh, Italian who was uh, caught, trapped, convicted, murdered, and executed within like 10 minutes. Um, they don't do it like they used to. Um, Okay, so Roosevelt becomes president and he promises a new deal for the American people. That was that again, Rose, uh, Sam Roseman didn't didn't coin that phrase, but he popularized it and turned New Deal into FDR's economic program. 
What was the New Deal? Um, FDR had to deal with the fact that there was tremendous po poverty. Um, and he decided essentially, functionally, he's going to create a whole host of government projects, agencies, bureaucracies that are going to get people to work, that are going to stabilize the, the economy. Hoover and FDR, if you would have asked him, 10 minutes before would say, government, that's not government's role. Government's role is to be the referee of the football game, not to be the quarterback on one of the teams. And FDR would change that and would have the government be intrusive into business, would to actually go ahead and be a part of the American economy. And that would be a major shift. No longer was the government interested in just keeping law and order, but the government now had social goals that it would execute and implement. Harold Ickes, who would be a very significant person um, and would end up being his secretary of the interior, would call this a bloodless revolution. This was a revolution. It has to, you have to remember, you know, before Roosevelt's presidency, you, the government, it was anarchy. I mean, you, you never saw the government. You never saw the government. It was FDR who really began to implement the governmental bureaucracies that we know and love or know and hate, depending on your political persuasion. That was all, um, that was all um, because of Roosevelt's initiatives. Reagan, who was initially, Ronald Reagan, who was a new dealer in the early, uh, in the beginnings, would, would counter it by saying where government expands, liberty contracts. Um, now, this would be create a, a major conflict of economic outlook. You had uh, Keynesian econo economy, economic theory would just say, jobs, jobs, jobs. You just need to do whatever you can. The government's job is to create jobs. And that's all there. And FDR you know, bought into that you know, big time. And you had the, op the, the, the opposite view is are the Milton Friedmans of the world who would tell you, no, that's a disaster. Uh, Friedman would, would say, if you want to make jobs, you get out the, I, I can solve all the problems. Have half the population dig holes. The other half of the population, fill them up. Everyone's got a job. So what are some of the, and again, I, I'm, not, I'm not here to lecture you on American history. We want to focus on Roosevelt and the Jews, but just to get a sense, uh, here, I, I, have, I have here a half dozen huge, massive government projects that FDR initiated. First thing he did, it's called the first hundred days, famously. First hundred days when he's president, just changes the American government and the entire structure of the United States very quickly. First, he shut down all the banks and called what we call the bank holiday, clean them all up. He institutes the, FI, the FDIC. Back then, you put money in a bank, it wasn't insured. Nowadays, banks are the safest place to put your dollars. He then passed the National Industrial Recovery Act, which ended cutthroat competition by forcing industries to establish rules of operation for all firms within specific industries, such as minimum prices, uh, non compete rules production restrictions. The P this is, by the way, if, it was, if you recall from your American history, this is what we called alphabet soup. You remember that? All of these government bureaucracies and agencies, all of them have these, these um, acronyms. And there's going to be like 12 of them. The NIR, so the, that's NIRA. Then you have PWA, per Public Works Administration, um, which was under ICCES, which basically the government would now hire people to you know, develop huge public works. Have you ever been on the FDR drive? In New York, right? Built by the PWA, Triborough Bridge, I believe also. A lot of the bridges in New York, a lot of these huge projects were part of the PWA. The Works Progress Administration, the CCC, 
Now, this is going to be important for Jewish history. The CCC, the Civilian Conservation Corps, was basically, you had a, you know, a huge amount of single you know, males between the ages of like 18 and 28 who were unemployed, starving, out of money, and out of work. The CCC was, a, was actually ended up being part of the military uh, to some degree, which was mismanaged, was basically these people, were, these, these youths were paid, housed, sheltered to go ahead and plant trees and forests. If you go to national parks today, you'll see, I, I remember I was just, if you go to, I saw this when I was, I was recently at Valley of Fire. And if you go past the main entrance, continue as if you're going to the lake, there are these houses there and there's a big sign. These buildings were built by the CCC. If you go to any national park, the trees, the houses, the, the, the paths, again, they've been redone a million times. Anything that was done by the CCC, um, you know, has, now it's a historical artifact. But this was a way where the government was literally employing the public to give them money. Um, the TVA, the Tennessee Valley Authority, where the government actually would start building the dams on the Tennessee River. What's the government doing? Building dams. That's for private industry. Roosevelt changed all of that. Federal Trade Commission, the FTC, the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, Social Security, um, many, many of these governmental agencies. Hours late, I want to just zip through one thing and then we'll, we'll end it in just a moment. The new dealers, these agencies were very, um, the new, new dealers were the people who ran or worked in these agencies. At the very, very top, very few of them were Jewish. He had one Jew, as I mentioned in his cabinet, Henry Morgenthau, who was the head of the, of the treasury. Francis Perkins, who was very pro-Jewish, we'll talk about next week, the first female cabinet member. People thought she was Jewish because she was very sympathetic to the plight of Jews. She was not Jewish. Cordell Hull, ironically, Secretary of State, who we're going to destroy next week. <laughs> Sadly, ironically, tragically, his wife was Jewish, which is hard to imagine. As we mentioned, Rosamund Brandeis, they're still important and influential. And um, however, the new dealers, the people on lower levels, not all the way at the bottom, the mid-level and below, they, statistics will tell you 15% of the new deal uh, administration, uh, administrative positions were filled by Jews. And Jews made up one, one and a half percent of the population. So new dealers were held very prominently. Felix Frankfurter, who I mentioned, uh, was Jewish, was an advisor to Roosevelt at the time. They would call him, and he, I don't know if he came up with it or others, you know, Frankfurter's hot dogs. Frankfurter's hot dogs were his students. He was a teacher in Harvard, and he would encourage all of his Jewish students to go be new dealers down in D.C. How successful was the New Deal? So this is where we have to take a little bit of a, of a, of a Torah lesson. In Judaism, in, in Torah and Musr, we talk about something called Nagiyas. Nagiyas are a, a Musr Jewish philosophical con concept, which are basically in modern so social psychology, we would call a bias. Judaism puts a lot of emphasis to recognize a lot of the decisions that you make, the attitudes and your approaches and how you look at the world. We like to think we just make rational decisions. I look at the world and I decide what's right and what's wrong. Recognize the way you look at the world, the way you assess the world is massively influenced by how you want the world to look like. For example, Torah tells us that Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Asa. Jacob was good. Asa was the monster. Now, Isaac was blind. He couldn't, he had, he, it was very hard for him to see what was going on. 
There were a lot of factors. But Isaac thought that Asaph was a good guy. And it's a very troubling sequence of events in the Torah. Now, Asaph was trying to manipulate Isaac, which is true, and there were many other factors. However, the Medrash tells us the reason why Isaac misjudges Asaph and thinks he's a hero and a good guy is why the Torah, the Medrash says, because Asaph used to give him food. He took care of him, took care of dad financially, which biased Isaac's judgment to think that Asaph is a good guy. Now, mind you, Isaac was a pious, righteous person. He was a great man. He understood psychology better than Sigmund Freud, right? And yet he was a victim of a bias. He wanted to see Asaph as a good kid. Why? Because he takes care of me financially. Was the New Deal successful or not? It's interesting. You will find people who say it was successful are all fiscally conservative. People who are, who are I'm sorry, fiscally liberal. People who will tell you, no, 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 it wasn't the New Deal. It did nothing. It was a disaster for the economy. It was World War II that ended all the, all the depression. They tend to be conservative. Now, the data is hard. to. It, it, this will be debated till time memorial forever. Was the New Deal successful? Wasn't successful. It's very hard to just look at the numbers and say, yeah, it was a failure. It gets a B plus. There are a million ways of looking at it, measuring it, engaging it. Isn't it interesting? Liberals will tell you it was a wild success. Conservatives will tell you it was a wild failure. Why? Because depending on your political outlook, that's how you want to judge it. That's a classic bias. What's my opinion? I don't get into politics. It's not relevant. But I think it's very important from a historical perspective. That's something that I'm more fascinated. Now, I do believe there is an answer to something. Is it good? Was it good? You know, I do have my thoughts. But I think from a Jewish perspective, I think that's interesting. We're going to end with just one last story because it's a great story. I mentioned the NIRA, which basically regulated industries, set prices. It really, that's the beginning, right, of regulation, which we know and love today or hate. And there was one classic case which really impacted a couple of Jews who never even realized what had happened to them. And it's the sick chicken case. The sick chicken case. What's the sick chicken case? You have a couple of brothers who have what's called in French a schlachthuis. What's a schlachthuis? In Yiddish, a slaughterhouse. They had a schlachthuis. These were Orthodox from Orthodox Jews who had, you know, shchita. They had, if you're Jewish ritual slaughter, they had a slaughterhouse. Now, based on the AAA, the NIRA, and whatever alphabet soup industry, right? The way um, there are now many regulations on how slaughterhouses had to operate. And that's fine and well, but in, or in, in Jewish ritual slaughter, it doesn't quite work like that. And especially when you're talking about, you know, first generation immigrants who barely spoke English, all they spoke was Yiddish, and another bunch of Hamish Jews who are just trying to shack their chickens and get on, you know, make a living and not starve to death in the middle of the Depression. And what happened, so what was supposed to happen is you, you, you're not allowed to pick the chicken. You take a chicken and you slaughter it. Now, with Jews back in the day, you know, people were poor for shrita, for ritual slaughter. It didn't quite work like that. And the nuances of Jewish slaughter made it a little bit more complicated. The federal government, you know, raided the, they were, it, it's the Schechter Poultry Corporation. Schechter Poultry Corporation, and basically found them guilty of all sorts of violations of the NIRA. You know, they they didn't, you know, they they were they were they had slaughtered sick chickens, which they took tremendous offense to. 
Because in Judaism, you're not allowed to use sick chickens. You have to have, because of the laws of shkita, of kashra, you can't use sick chickens. What they had done is they were, they were finding chickens that were good for shkita, for ritual slaughter, which was against the NIRA policies. You know, these were Jews who were not used to regulations. These were not monsters. These were not people. These are just people who are just trying to set slaughter chickens in an unregulated world where, you know, now there's a lot of regulation. They were found guilty. They were get, uh, convicted, huge fine, and they spent a couple months in jail. They appealed their case. And eventually it would make its way up to the Supreme Court, who ruled in their favor. And the Supreme is one of the most important cases in the, of New Deal legislation. The Supreme Court in 1935, 1930, 1935, would go ahead and based on cases like the Schechter poultry case and a few others, would go ahead and find that many of the New Deal programs were actually unconstitutional. And they would get broken down. Many of the new original New Deal work was, was shot down. Um, it eventually would get re- rebuilt. Brandeis would coach uh, Roosevelt, tell him how you can do it legally and in a kosher way, pardon the pun. The Schechters, they never knew what happened to them. They were just pawns. These are low people. They were just pawns in some big scheme. Um, this would actually trigger a very important part in Jewish history where Roosevelt, who was so furious at the Supreme Court for you know, tearing down his sacred New Deal, that he stumbled on his biggest political mistake of his career is the infamous court packing scheme. The Constitution doesn't say how many Supreme Court justices are supposed to be uh, are there. That's based on federal law. But, but Roosevelt decided, well, if I can, instead of a court of, I think there were 13 at the time, let's have a court of 23, and I'll be the one to nominate the justices, and they'll all vote in my favor. And everyone saw right through it of him trying to, to meddle into a different branch of government, and there was tremendous pushback, and he had to retreat from that. I've gone way overboard. I apologize. Suffice it to say, the New Deal is complicated and nuanced. Jews tended to love it. Why? For a few reasons, real quick. He was wildly popular in the general public. Here are the Jews, the first time, first, second generation Jews, immigrant Jews who had a real hero that they could turn to and idolize. And if you wanted to be a patriotic American, you vote, you were excited by the president. And just to end, the, Torah, the, the, Met, the Mishnah tells us that characteristics of being a Jew, uh, the characteristics of being, the way the Mishnah says, if I recall, is being a, child, a descendant of Avraham Avinu, being a descendant of Abraham, is that they are Rachmanim Baishanim and Gmolei Chasadim. They're compassionate, where people of, of shame and humility, and people who, are, who practice kindness. Now, whether or not you think the New Deal is the right way, to solve problems, that's a nice political you know, conversation. What I don't think is, is up for debate is Roosevelt really did have a heart, a very big heart, and really did want to help people out a lot, deeply. Now, he was a complicated man, as we mentioned, but he definitely was a rachama. He definitely was a compassionate person, and I think Jews really, really identified with that value. As we're going to see next week, things get a lot more complicated with the rise of Nazi Germany and the horrors of the, of the 30s in Germany. But please, God, we'll talk about that next week. I want to thank you all for coming. I'm happy to stick around for anyone who has questions. I apologize for going late, but feel free to, to bounce out. But I'm, I'm here to answer questions. I'm sorry I went a couple minutes late. Al's got a, a question. As an actual student, you'll be free in the 
chicken finger in my father's social culture shop. <laughs> really? Yeah, that, that's probably true. Nothing, right? And, and, and it's because we should know is that Hoover, the percent, the, the Hoover got, I, I, more Jews voted, voted for, I forget it, Hoover ran in, uh, in 28, he beats, I forget who he ran against. But he, I think that he, he um, but it wasn't nearly the same percentage. And, and Hoover was admired by Jews because, again, Hoover was a nice guy also, very nice guy. But FDR would be the, where, where Jews are, are at, till today are identified as being, you know, blindly following the Democratic Party. We can thank FDR for that, clearly. But that is absolutely true. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Jewish History Podcast. As always, we'd really appreciate if you like and share this podcast or even better, leave a comment. For more information, please visit us at www.lasvegascola.org.